Welcome to Purdue Commercial AgCast, the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture's podcast featuring farm management news and information. I'm your host, James Minner, director of the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture. And joining me today is my colleague, Dr. Michael Langemeyer, who's the associate director of the Center for Commercial Agriculture. We're going to review the results from the August Purdue University CME Group Ag Economy Barometer Survey of farmers from across the nation. Each month, we survey 400 farmers across the U.S. to learn more about their perspectives on the ag economy. This month's Ag Barometer Survey was conducted from the 15th through the 19th of August, which of course was after USDA released the August 12th Crop Production Report, as well as the World Ag Supply Demand Estimates. So, Michael, the Ag Economy Barometer rose this month. It's the second month in a row we've seen a rise. This was a bigger month than la- a bigger uh, rise than what we saw last month. I think last month we were up maybe uh, six points or so. Uh, this month we're up, I think, 14 points to 117 versus 103 uh, in, in back in July. Um, we're still down compared to a year ago, 15% lower than a year ago. What do you think was going on there with the rise in sentiment? I think as we get closer to the end of the year, there's they, they have more information regarding what the possible yields might be, what the performance uh, is, is going to be for crop and livestock enterprises. And also, we've seen some pretty healthy uh, prices, particularly for corn and soybeans recently. And so I think this is very consistent, uh, the fact that this ag economy barometer went up to 117 uh, with the Farm Financial uh, Performance Index, which we're going to talk about here in a couple of minutes. Yeah, I think it's important to remember when we collected data, because as you look at the time time frame between when we collected data in July and when the survey was conducted in August, we did see a, a nice rise in especially corn and soybean prices. Um, listeners to the podcast realize, of course, recently those prices have dropped off pretty sharply, but that was after we collected data. The other thing that was interesting was when you look at the index of current conditions and the index of future expectations, they both rose this month. Current condition was up nine points, but the big move was the future expectation index, which rose 16 points. Uh, were you surprised by that? I was a little surprised at that because I thought I thought the current conditions index would would rise more than the, the index of future expectations, and so I was a little surprised at this because when you think about future expectations, you're looking at 23, 24, 25, and and yeah, the prospects for 23 look fairly good uh, when you look at the corn and soybean prices. We still have some pretty high uh, input costs. I'm with you, Michael. I would have expected the current condition index to rise more than the future expectation index because I think at the end of the day, when producers look at their income uh, for 2022 compared to history, uh, maybe not compared to 2021, but compared to history, it's going to look like a very good year for the vast majority of, especially crop producers, right? Yeah, definitely well above average. As you said, uh, probably not as good as 2021, but but certainly well above the long run average. And the uncertainty about where we're headed in 23 and 24, I think, is still out there. So it was a little bit of a surprise. It's going to be interesting to see how that shakes out next month. Um, we continue to ask a question that says, looking ahead to next year, what are your biggest concerns for your farming operation? And even more than last month, producers said their number one concern is higher input cost. Yeah, I think that's de- that's definitely a, a, on people's mind, and 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 part of what's going on here, I think, is there's just a wide band of possible input costs. And so, uh, first of all, there's there, I think they're worried that the the levels we saw in 22 are not going away, but they're also concerned, so at least some people, that we're going to see further increases in those input costs. Yeah, and to put that in perspective, last month in July, 42% of the people in the survey said their number one concern was higher input cost. This month, that rose to 53%. 
Um, and the percentage choosing lower crop or livestock prices as their number one concern actually fell this month compared to last month. In July, 19% said that was essentially their number two choice. Uh, this month, that dropped back to 11%, which again is a little bit surprising, especially when you look at the price changes that have occurred since we collected data in August. So it's, again, this we'll ask this question again on the September survey. It's going to be interesting to see how that shakes out. Um, the Farm Financial Performance Index, which you alluded to earlier, which is largely reflecting producers' uh, I guess concerns or, or how they feel about their farms' financial performance in 2022, rose this month 11 points, uh, which again is what we were thinking would maybe drive that current condition index a little stronger than it was. So it's at 99 versus 88 last month. If you go back to May, that index got all the way down to 81. So compared to the spring, that index is quite a bit stronger. And I think that makes sense, particularly, Michael, when I look at some of the work you've done with the simulated corn and soybean operation here in Indiana, probably more reflective of maybe people realizing that 2022 is going to be a pretty good year by historical standards. Yeah, you go back to May and June, it, did, it looked like it was going to be above average, but maybe only slightly above average. Now, if you take a look at, at possible net returns for, for corn and soybean producers in particular, it looks like some very healthy net returns. One of the issues underneath this that we really don't have any data for is what percentage of the 2022 crops have already been marketed by producers. There were some opportunities to lock in some very favorable prices earlier this uh, spring and, and very beginning of the summer. Um, even in the time frame when we were collecting data for this survey relative to where prices are today, and we don't have a very good grip on that. We don't know how much of that crop was already marketed, but to the extent producers actually did some forward pricing, that might be one of the things that's driving that improvement in the Farm Financial Performance Index. They might be thinking about what those returns might be at those favorable prices. Do you agree with that? Yeah, perhaps we need to ask a question on a, on a future uh, Ag Economy Barometer survey to, to try to get at that. Yeah, it's an interesting one. It's, it's a tough one for us to address in the survey. We've tried doing some of that in the past, and the challenge, of course, is the way our survey is stratified, we don't stratify uh, based on acreage. And so that makes it a little bit tough. But yeah, I think that maybe we, let's think about that for a question we could ask, uh, address a little more completely. Um, so we've been asking people now for some time, going back to the spring, what kind of a change they expect to see in crop input prices in 2023 compared to what they paid in 2022. And, you know, as we're talking about this, Michael, you and I are looking at a chart that's got a lot of bars on it. And I guess the message of that chart is a tremendous amount of uncertainty. We have people in the survey that say this month, I think it was 15% of the people in the survey said they think input prices are going to go down somewhere between 1% and 10% compared to what they paid in 2022. 25% of the people in the survey said, they think prices will be flat, essentially unchanged from what they paid in 2022. And then on the other end of this spectrum, 20% of them said that they think input prices will rise 10 to 19%. 8% expect input prices to rise 20% or more. 
I don't think anybody knows what's going on on with these input prices, and that just is being reflected in our survey. What do you think? I, I think it's certainly being reflected here, and and, and really it it depends on what input you're looking at as part of the problem. Cash rents uh, are, are are going up. Uh, fertilizer costs look like they're going to be down uh, compared to 22, and so we've got some changes, some some changes, negative, positive, going on with different inputs. Uh, I did some early uh, budgets for corn and soybeans in 23 in Indiana, and I'm actually showing a, a 5 to 6% increase. Uh, you know, fertilizer costs are down, but some of the other costs, uh, fuel repairs, and some of these are expected to increase. Just a tremendous amount of uncertainty. And you and I have been talking about this for some time. The uncertainty with respect to what it's going to cost to put a crop in the ground, I think, is leading to some of the weakness we've seen in farmer sentiment over an extended period now. I definitely think that definitely think that's the case. So the Farm Capital Investment Index, which is based on a question, of course, that says, is now a good time or a bad time to make large investment in your farming operation, was almost unchanged. It was up three points to a reading of 39. Uh, that compares to 36 last month. I think the month before that, it was 35. I guess the way I characterize that, Michael, is to think about it, it's really hovering near all-time lows. Uh, keeping in mind, we've only got data going back to the fall of 2015, but still a pretty weak farm capital investment index. Um, and then as you look at this, just in the last couple of months, we started asking the follow-up question. For people that say it's a bad time, we've been asking them, what is the primary reason that they think now is a bad time to like make large investments in their farming operation? And we were surprised the first time we asked this question, at least I was, and it wasn't really a surprise this month, given what happened last month, but almost half, 49%, said it's because of the increase in prices for farm machinery and new construction. It really helps put in perspective uh, what, what's really going on with that farm, that farm investment index. Uh, the, the index is relatively low because of high prices for a lot of these folks. And so it's not necessarily a fact that they don't have uh, good solvency, good liquidity, cash flow available uh, for purchasing machinery. It's just that they think it's very expensive. Yeah, I, I, that's, that's the key point. And so, you know, when we've been asking the follow-up questions, uh, which what are your plans for farm machinery purchases in the upcoming year compared to a year? ago, we're actually seeing an improvement there in the standpoint of fewer people are telling us they plan to reduce their expenditures on machinery. Uh, back in March, 62% said they were going to cut back. Uh, that's been drifting lower since then. This month, that was down to 49%. And, you know, that's not a great number, but it does point out the fact that Although some people say this is a, a significant percentage of our people in our survey say this is a bad time to make large investments, some people are making them, right? They're just not real happy about the prices they're paying for it, right? Yeah, I think when some people look at their cash flow for 22 and they do a uh, do a tax estimate, uh, they may change their mind and, and, and rethink uh, whether they need to buy some machinery. Yeah, I think as we enter the fourth quarter, approach the fourth quarter here, um, we're going to see those kind of considerations take place, particularly as the, as we get harvest underway. I think because yeah. we have to remember that you, you know we're dealing with we're dealing with a, with a group here that uh, some of these people haven't made very significant uh, uh, purchases since since uh, 2013. Uh, that was the last time where where we really saw a very large capital expenditures uh, uh, in U.S. agriculture. And it's not that we didn't make any expenditures, but expenditures have been down uh, for a few years. And so I I would think that there's good some people out 
out there that are really in need uh, of replacing some machinery. Yeah, and the, the the inventories are still tight, but people are telling us that's not a, a huge concern for them. In fact, uh, you know, when we asked that question about the primary reason, um, tight farm machinery inventories last month and this month, seven, eight percent, right? I mean, that was uh, that's not the, the key consideration. And I guess that was a little bit of a surprise for us because in some prior surveys, people told us that that was a bigger issue or at least suggested uh, that that was a bigger issue. When we asked the question head on, so to speak, um, they're saying that's not really what's holding them back, right? So very interesting. Um, Short-term farmland uh, index, short-term farmland value expectation index, essentially unchanged. This month's reading was 128. Last month was 127. You compare that to where we were this time last year, we were at 146. So the in index is down, I think, 18 points compared to a year earlier. Um, if you compare it to the peak, which was in earlier in, in 2021, it's down about 20% compared to the 2021 peak. Um, but... You know, Michael, as I look at, at the index and the life of the index going back to 2016, even the very beginning of the survey in, in 2015, it's still a pretty positive value, right? Yeah, I don't think the stars are aligned quite as quite as much as they were in, in 21 in terms of uh, everything impacting farmland markets was positive, uh, meaning that uh, prices were probably going to go up. But there's there's still a lot of signs that are very positive, uh, you know, for, for farmland values at least increasing uh, a little bit uh, in the next year or two. So I'm I'm going to drop back in, in a previous podcast uh, with Todd Keithy. We talked about the results from the Purdue. Uh, in Indiana farmland value survey. And one of the questions he asked the respondents, and keep in mind these, these uh, respondents was uh, providing responses back in June, uh, they forecast an increase in values here, I think going out over what the next year, uh, low single digits, right? A year ago, they were much more optimistic. And so I think what we're picking up with the farmland value index probably matches up what people are telling uh, Todd on the uh, farmland value survey. What do you think? Definitely. I mean, it's, it's not like that we're going to see that 20, 30 percent increase again, like we saw uh, we saw uh, in the last year. But things are still positive. Uh, really, the only f only factor related to the farmland market that's really not positive right now is the rise in interest rates. We still have strong cash flow. Uh, we're going to talk about it. We still have a lot of interest from non-farm investors uh, in, in the farmland market. So there's a lot of positives uh, you know, related to uh, uh, to farmland market. Yeah, so the long-term uh, farmland value expectation index, it was actually down a little bit. So, But again, I, a small enough change that I call it kind of a, a no change. It was at 146 this month. It was 150 last month. You compare it to a year ago, it was 155. So one of the things that's interesting is the although both of these indexes are lower than they were a year ago, the Long-term index is down just just a very little compared to where it was a year ago. So long-term, people are still pretty optimistic about farmland values. In fact, we had a question this month. I, I don't think I put it in the, the deck we're looking at here, Michael, but I think you probably remember the results, where we asked people whether or not now is a, a good time to, uh, to make investments in farmland or how they essentially how they view farmland value as a, as a long-term uh, investment. And that's still very positive. I think it was up around what seventy percent. Said it's yeah. We were, we've been asking that the last August for the, about the last four years, and it's right at about seventy percent. And more importantly, perhaps it's higher than it has been the last three years. And, and so this view that they think that that farmland is a good investment uh, is certainly reflected in this long-term farmland value expectations index. 
Yeah, it just kind of points out that there's a difference between people's short-run look uh, at farmland values and their long-run. Long-run, they continue to think it's a, it's a good investment. They're relatively optimistic over the long run. In, in our survey, that's only defined as five years, but I think some people probably think about it a little longer than that, uh, even when they're responding to that question. Short run, they've backed off their expectations, I guess is how I'd look at it. Um, we asked people, uh, going back to January now, uh, if they tell us that they think farmland values are going to rise over the next five years, we asked them, what's the primary reason that they expect farmland values to rise? And you know, the first couple times we asked this question, you and I, I think we're both surprised, but I'm no longer surprised at it. Uh, the number one reason is they think non-farm investor demand is going to really support farmland values. This month, 57% of the people in the survey that said they think farmland values will rise over the next five years, their number one reason for thinking that was non-farm investors. Um, the interesting thing is we look at the trend there, going back to April, there's been a change. In April, 43% said they expected that really to be coming from non-farm investors. Now 57%. What what do you make of that change? It's really interesting, and, and I think part of the part of the change is due to a lower inflation. Uh, you know, inflation as a uh, as a hedge, uh, it went down a little bit from 35% in April uh, to 25% in August. So perhaps some of those people uh, that 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 marked uh, inflation uh, put put it into um, non-farm investor demand. I, I I don't know. I'm just guessing uh, that, that that's part of what's going on. I. I I look at those two as related, uh, even though you know inflation and you know land, farmland is a, a hedge against inflation is important to to agriculture producers uh, that own land. It's also important to non-farm investor demands. So I kind of look at those two together. Yeah, that's a good point. And for our listeners, I should probably, uh, provide some clarity with respect to what this question, uh, how it's phrased. So when we ask the question, we give uh, list or uh, respondents some choices. Uh, the choices are strong farm cash flows low interest rates, non-farm investor demand, inflation, and then the ubiquitous other category uh, where we let the users define it for themselves. And so I think you're right. I think there is an interplay going on here between the inflation category and the non-farm investors. And I, maybe some of that rise in non-farm investor uh, showing up in the survey reflects the idea that they think inflation is going to drive non-farm investors to invest in real estate in general, probably, and non-farm or farm investments uh, in in particular. I, I, another another point on this on this uh, on this uh, issue is there's a category category called other. I looked on in this I looked in the results uh, and, and and saw what they wrote uh, regarding that other. A lot of people that that marked other said all all of the factors. Yeah, that's a good point. So we should probably dwell on this just a little bit because I know you've done some extensive research on farmland values uh, re related to investments, related to, for example, the stock market. And thinking about that, what's your perspective on farmland value as a hedge against inflation? I think it's an excellent hedge against inflation. In fact, uh, when I had a graduate student look at this, uh, it's actually a better hedge against inflation than gold and silver. Uh, it follows inflation closer than gold and silver. And obviously, gold and silver have been thought for decades as being a good uh, hedge against inflation. So that's important. But also, uh, from you know, looking at the non-farm investor demand, uh, farmland returns are not correlated 
associated with the stock market. And that's really important from a non-farm investor because they're always looking for assets that have a decent return. Farmland return has a, farmland has a decent return from a risk-adjusted standpoint uh, over time. Uh, that's not that's not uh, directly related uh, to the stock market, and 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 farmland fits that to a T. So, I guess. Listening to you talk there, Michael, and thinking about your analysis you've done, you've really done some a lot of work on this, especially with your PhD student here a couple of years ago. Um, I think I hear you saying that maybe you agree with what producers are telling us about non-farm investor demand supporting farmland values. Am I hearing that right? I think the non-farm investors are at those auctions and will continue to be. Uh, I still think that uh, they're not marking strong farm cash flows as much as they perhaps should, because uh, I do think that they, the farmers are also in, at these auctions, and certainly the strong uh, farm cash flows we saw uh, 2020, 2021, and 2022 has contributed uh, to, to the increase in the land market in the last couple of years. And I have to fall back on the comments we've picked up from some of the major uh, farm auction, farm real estate auction houses here in Indiana, and that conduct a lot of auctions really across the U.S., uh, Haldermans and Schraders both, tell us that at their auctions, they do see the presence of non-farm investors, but the majority of the farms are still being bought by farmers, right? All right, so uh, following up on the cash rent issue, which we've been asking now for several months, uh, by how much do you expect, well, really two levels here. I, got, I need to back up, Michael. The first question is, do you expect cash rents to rise, stay the same, or uh, actually decline in 2023? relative to 2022, and this question only goes to corn and soybean farmers, so it's essentially kind of a corn belt question. 41% um, of the people in the survey say they expect to see cash rents rise in 2023. Then we do the follow-up question. If you think cash rents are going to rise, we ask by how much? And this is kind of interesting. There's been a little bit of a change here, hasn't there? I'm not surprised by the how much question. Uh, you know, uh, uh, two thirds of the response are saying they, they expect the rise to be less than 10%. I think that's consistent uh, with what, what, what we're seeing here uh, in Indiana. What I'm a little surprised at is the 41% that, that expect cash rents to rise in 2023 for two reasons. First of all, the average increase, and this is all in nominal dollars, so there's no inflation adjustment here. Uh, the, the average increase over a long period of time is like 3%. So th that would be, if it's, if it's zero or, 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 or come down, that would be below the long-run trend. And again, you look at the cash flows we've seen the last two or three years, they're really strong, so that doesn't make any sense to me. But the other thing is inflation. Uh, you know, if inflation's 5%, 6 uh, you know, uh, you'd expect a, a rise at least to match inflation. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um and I think the people that are saying that they don't think cash rents are going to rise, and I think, uh, uh, you know, 57% or so, I think it was, said that they expect no change in cash rents. Um, you know, that's an interesting question, I suppose. For some people, it could be, what do I think cash rent's going to happen on my farm? And if they've got a long-term agreement, perhaps there is going to be no change for them. Whereas we're coming at it from the perspective of, What's the market doing? And that's more along the lines of properties that are changing hands, um, properties that maybe are coming up for an auction, although there's not that many that come up for cash rent auctions, but properties that are changing hands or maybe a renewal kind of agreement 
I, th- I think we're getting a, maybe a little bit of a mixed bag there in our responses. I think, I, I think you're. I think you hit the nail on the head there. I think. I think we're thinking it's more of a marginal. Uh, we're looking at kind of what the marginal cash rents are doing, and I think they're certainly heading upward, uh, you know, less than ten percent perhaps, but uh, heading upward. Uh, we we talked about five percent in in the in the uh, the webinar we did on cash rents and land values as as being a, a possible figure. Uh, but on average, uh, there's a lot of people probably that don't move cash rents that often, uh, even if it's a one-year contract, they don't move them unless there's a, a, a strong reason uh, to increase them or de- decrease them. And so maybe that's coming out. Yeah. So that's, that's I think, a little bit of an interpretation. I, so I maybe have a slightly different perspective than what you shed, or, or said here a minute ago, Michael. To me, the 41% of corn and soybean farmers, corn and soybean farmers expecting cash rents to rise, I think that's pretty significant. Um, because I do think that that reflects that marginal move, and that's that's where the market's headed. So to wrap this discussion up, I think you've got a model that actually tries to anticipate what's going to happen to cash rents, and so you might just share those results. Yeah, the, res- the results from that model, that's where I'm getting the 5%, uh, 5% nominal dollars, or, or essentially flat uh, if you adjust for inflation. I'm using 5% inflation in, in, that, in that model right now for 23. So... We've asked people about carbon credits uh, a number of times now. I mean, there's just a lot of interest in agriculture with respect to what's going on on farmers being paid to sequester carbon carbon on, on farmland, especially row crop operations. And so going back to the beginning of 2021, we've been asking people, have you actively engaged in discussions with any companies regarding receiving payments for capturing carbon on your farm? And the first couple times we asked this, January, February of 21, uh, the response was between 5 and 6% of the people in the survey said, yeah, we've had some discussions. It actually dropped off a little bit. And when we asked that question last October, October of 21, it dropped down to between 2 and uh, 2.5%. I don't know how significant those moves are because there's a small number of people in the total survey that are actually engaged in this. So... I guess my take is a small number have been engaged in these discussions. This month was a little bit different. It jumped to 9%. And I think on our survey, 9% versus the numbers we've received on previous surveys is representing some movement. What do you take? I, I definitely think that's the case. Uh, I mean, we're going to talk about it, but there's there's not, it really is no movement in the percentage that are si- actually signing contracts, but there's certainly an upward movement in those that have actually dis- uh, actually engaged in discussions. And, and when you talk to, to audiences, they, they seem to be, they seem to have more knowledge about some of the features of the contracts. And so uh, that, that, <laughs> that comes out uh, that there's more people actually looking at these. Yeah, I think there's more consideration. And, you know, We've done the farm management tour here these last couple of years. Both years, uh, 2022, 2021, farms that are on the tour have been engaged not only in discussions, but they've actually signed contracts um, in one case on a portion of their acreage. And another case, I think in virtually everything they farm, they signed up for a carbon contract. So there's more activity out there uh, now than there was, uh, for example, at the beginning of 2021. That's my take. Um, Now, as you point out, though, when we get down to the part where we say, have you signed a contract? That part doesn't seem to have changed, at least in our survey. Um, and there's, you know, you could debate that whether or not we have a large enough sample to really capture that, I suppose. In fact, we're talking about doing something a little more intensive in that arena. But um, 
at least in our survey, we're not picking up a significant increase in the number of people that have signed contracts, but we have picked up more interest in people actually engaging in discussions and getting the details. So, of the people that have been engaged in discussions, and keep in mind this month that was about 9% of the people in the survey, we said, what is the payment rate per metric ton of carbon that you were offered to capture carbon on your farm? And those rates continue to be pretty low. Uh, 39% said it was less than $10 per metric ton. And just from some, some of the conversations, Michael, uh, we've been hearing rates like $9. Is, so I think that $9 category probably drove that less than 10. Um, 36% said 10 up to $20 per metric ton. And then on the upper end, you know, I think 19% said they were offered between 20 and 30, and 6%, which is a very small number of people in our survey, said $30 or more per metric ton. Uh, Three-fourths said they were offered a rate of less than 20. Um, doesn't seem like there's been too much movement there. What do you what do you These amounts are small enough that if you did have to adopt a new practice such as uh, reducing tillage, maybe going to no-till uh, is, is a good example or or using a cover crop, you're not getting paid a lot of money to do those things. And so I, I think that it is showing up uh, as one of the reasons and we found that in the survey results actually, uh, these low payments are are causing people not to sign the contracts to some extent. Yeah. So just to follow up, we did ask a question of people that had signed a contract, and I want to caution our listeners, this is a small number of people, so you can't extrapolate, well, you, you could easily extrapolate too much from these results, I guess. But 80%, I believe, of the people that have signed a contract said that they were going to do the practices anyway. And so they viewed, well, my interpretation is they viewed the payment they got as kind of a bonus. Um, so I, I agree with you, Michael. The payments so far that are being offered are largely not high enough to induce people to do something from a management practice standpoint that's different than what they either already do or we're planning to do, I guess, the way the contracts are written. And another issue that's coming out is is measuring how much carbon you're sequestering with these practices. It's also, uh, a, a, you know, there's some uncertainty around that, uh, you know, how the company is going to measure whether you've made improvements and, and e even how much uh, an improvement, uh, how much difference an improvement makes. And so there's still some uncertainty related to that. That's not helping either uh, in terms of getting people to sign up. Yeah. So... Uh, we could talk about carbon for a long time, so we'll, we'll maybe save that for another day because I think we've got some more details we could share, uh, particularly with some of the work some of our colleagues are doing. So um, one of the follow-up questions, though, we did ask is, of the people who had engaged in discussions but said they chose not to sign a contract, we asked them, what is the minimum payment rate per acre that they would accept to enroll part of their farm's acreage in a carbon capture program? And I think this just confirms that the rates being offered simply aren't large enough. Um, you know, I think, uh, let's see, I'm kind of adding up the numbers here real quick in my head, Michael. Roughly two-thirds, not quite 70%, roughly two-thirds of the people in the survey said they would need to get $30 or more per acre. Um, one out of five, 19%, said they would need $60 per acre or more. Um, so... I think that just confirms that if we want to see more enrollment, uh, it's going to take more dollars on a per acre basis to get people in. You agree? 
Yes, I definitely agree with that. And I, I was looking at some uh, uh, University of Illinois data. They have some uh, work they're doing looking at uh, net returns for different tillage practices, uh, net returns for cover cropping. Uh, and, and when you look at the average difference in net return uh, between those that are no-till and those that are doing, you know, one light pass and, 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 and those that are doing cover crop versus not uh, cover crop, you're looking at an average difference in net return that's $50 uh, for both of those practices. And so it just gives you some idea. If you haven't done those practices before and you're looking at data like that, you're going to need more than $20 per acre uh, to be encouraged to sign these contracts. So it's going to be interesting to see how this shakes out. I think for the time being, we're going to continue to see people that are signing carbon carbon contracts that are viewing this as a bonus. They, it, they want to do perhaps switch to no-till. They want to use cover crops. And then this is just a small bonus to help cover that that additional cost that they might be incurring or, or maybe help push them over the edge, so to speak. Um, it's it's does not appear to be large enough to convince somebody to change their farming practices. So that's I think that's showing up pretty consistently, I think, on our surveys. So well Michael, that kind of wraps up our discussion for today. Uh, for more details about the Purdue CME group Ag Economy Barometer, you can go to our website, Purdue.edu slash Ag Barometer. Um, Michael and I were discussing really a series of charts that we included and you can actually download the charts and look at them and for some more detail if you want to do that from on the website and associated with this podcast as well so the next ag economy barometer will be released on tuesday october 4th and that's going to be an interesting one given what's going on i mean every one of these is interesting michael but i think we're in such a period of volatility it's going to continue to be very interesting Um, so i encourage you to share the podcast with your friends and colleagues and so behalf of my colleague michael langemeyer and the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture. I'm James Mitter. Thanks for listening.